Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Join us, won't you, as we adventure through a media-rich landscape dotted with lovely and picturesque movies, books, streaming series, and engaging guests with tales of the media they have planted and nourished. Today, we are so honored to welcome the legendary Cindy Williams from Laverne and Shirley. She is about to join us. But first, Fritz, what lucky reviewer of our fine program shall have her words dance across your very lips today? This is brief but complimentary, mm-hmm. which is good. Let's bring it. This is uh, entitled Legends by Oh Hey Katie D. <laughs> In this time of social distancing, the loneliness is real. It's nice to hear familiar voices keeping me company. Thank you so much. Oh, hey, KDD. I love the screen name and I love the review. But I mean, I, I love that we're, that we're sort of uh, massaging people's mental health during this whole thing. Oh, I mean, that's just absolutely gratifying to hear. Mm-hmm. Would you like to hear a little bit about what I was watching this week? For yes. This? So do you get the acorn? I do not. The acorn is British and or Australian. Is it part of BritBox? I mean, maybe... I just wish I knew like the umbrellas that there are, mm-hmm. you know, you know, this like one company pretty much owns us all. But mm-hmm. Acorn is where you can watch a lot of programming. And there's so much programming that happens in like some idyllic small town that's lovely to live in if you don't mind murder. <laughs> so but I found one that doesn't involve detectives and a body washing up on some beach. So this is called 800 Words. And it's a fish out of water tale where the fish is Australians and the out of water is New Zealand. Yes, to those of us in this hemisphere, that feels like veering left and doing a little bit of rowing. But it is a culture shift in the land down under. A widowed father and his kids encounter adventure, intrigue, and quirky neighbors when they move from Sydney, Australia to the small coastal and fictional New Zealand town of Weld. He is a writer who enforces a strict 800-word count to his essays, which voice his experiences. I am finding it delightful. You will find 800 words on Acorn, which is the same spelling in American and in New Zealandan. Come on, the Brits are the best at everything. Best well, television, these, this, best films, best acting, best everything. These are Australians. Oh, uh, okay. I'm sorry, they, I yeah. So it's it's really, really fun. And, but you it's said beautiful. you found it on a British streaming service, which is Acorn. They have a lot of British and or, I guess, commonwealths <laughs> that fall under the crown. They have a lot of Australian programming as well. Mm-hmm. So what have you been fun. up to? Well, I, I saw a movie that's open for discussion called The Power of the Dog. It's in theaters. It's on Netflix now. And speaking of New Zealand, this is a Western drama set in 1925 Montana, but actually shot in New Zealand. And the sweeping vistas are a dead ringer for Montana. It's based on a 1967 novel by Thomas Savage. It's directed by Jane Campion, who directed The Piano, a spectacular film in 1993 with Holly Hunter and Harvey Keitel. Now, at first, you think the beautiful cinematography is going to be the major part of the film. It just seems like a slow-moving, beautiful character study. And that's what it is for the first three quarters. And then things get dark and interesting. It's about two wealthy Montana ranchers, Phil and George Burbank. They represent opposite ends of human emotions. George (laughs) is a kind, dapper, thoughtful man. Phil is a volatile, cruel, and dirty person. They meet widow Rose Gordon, who falls in love with and marries George. She and her son Peter move into the ranch, and Phil, the darker brother, makes both of them miserable because he thinks that Rose is marrying George just for his money. Phil antagonizes Rose constantly, driving her further into her alcoholism. And he and the other ranchers taunt and criticize her son Peter as well because he's a sensitive and a bit delicate, you could almost say effeminate in his demeanor. And as he would walk through the scenes, the ranchers would often say, well, here comes Nancy, all the old tropes. And as the movie goes on, there starts to be homoerotic tension between the gruff Phil and the soft Peter. I'm going to stop there. I just will say that you have to pay close attention to the plot points after the halfway point. This will help you to understand the dark twist at the end. A hint to understanding the film is the fact that the author of the novel, 
Thomas Savage was a closeted gay man who worked on a Montana ranch earlier in his life. And although the book and the movie are not strictly autobiographical, the flavor is definitely informed by Savage's experience. The down and dirty Phil Burbank is played by Benedict Cumberbatch. His more gentlemanly opposite brother, George Burbank, is played by Jesse Plemons. Rose Gordon is Jesse's real wife in real life, Kirsten Dunst, and Rose's son, Peter, is played by a young man by the name of Cody Smith McPhee. This man is a beyond gifted actor. What a revelation to watch him. Incidentally, the phrase power of the dog is from a Bible verse that appears later on in the film. I loved it, but you have to be patient because it takes a long time to get you interested. Yeah, it's it's a very still movie, and it's also uh, uh, ominously creepy yeah. in, in, in places where you're going to want to pause it and play some Tetris or just clear your head and maybe <laughs> bake something. I don't know. But, you know, come back to it and also pay attention to the close-ups, as Fritz was saying, because every shot is there for a reason. And if you're um, – this is just a tiny, tiny spoiler alert. If you're watching it for the dogs, there are no dogs. <laughs> right. There's no dogs in the movie. That's why I mentioned the Bible yeah. verse because it makes no sense until the very end of the movie. All right. I watched a documentary on HBO Max called 15 Minutes of Shame. The internet gives frustrated individual voices collective power. Twitter, do your thing. But when we cancel and dox and shame, are we overcorrecting? Tech companies have learned that when we are pissed, we are more engaged. And so they are using your anger for profit. Our rage is their revenue. This is not good for the health of either you or our human community. 15 Minutes of Shame takes a deep look at folks who have been hung out in the cyber stockade of social media shaming. The guy with a garage full of hand sanitizer, the woman who told Trump voters they shouldn't get a ventilator, the man who appeared to be giving a white power sign at a Black Lives Matter protest. He wasn't. He's Mexican. Maybe it felt empowering to stick it to them and continue scrolling, but their lives were shattered. The Doc is produced by Max Joseph from MTV's Catfish and Monica Lewinsky from Being Monica Lewinsky. Wouldn't a healthy conversation be more effective and productive than shame? You will find 15 Minutes of Shame on HBO Max. Cool. Let's keep the topic current, and we talked about this before the podcast, mm -hmm. that Instagram is going to testify before Congress this week. And in preparation for that, they've already tried to tweak some of their rules so that they won't get slapped too bad by Congress because they've been accused because of whistleblower testimony of uh, causing great uh, – uh, shame among teenagers and self-esteem issues and suicidal thoughts and all, all those things. And I don't know how they've done it, but we'll find out over the next couple of days that they've tweaked their algorithms to be a little more protective of sensitive teens and also giving parents a little more control over the time spent and the hours, uh, the specific hours that the children spend on Instagram. So it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Awesome. Are you ready to introduce our Let's guest? Let's go. I can't wait. Cindy Williams is an actress and comedian who has starred in some of the most notable movies and television programs in entertainment history. Cindy's lengthy list of groundbreaking achievements includes Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days, The Conversation, and American Graffiti. Cindy's passion for performing is deeply rooted in theater, and she travels with wonderful shows all over the country, including a stint on Broadway in The Drowsy Chaperone. This is all according to her author page on Amazon.com, so it must be true. <laughs> Welcome, Cindy. Yay. Well, yay. Well, thanks for having me. Say, gang, are yeah. there any koala bears involved in any of those films that you were talking about? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. Because I'd be very interested. I know there are no dogs, but <laughs> koala bears. The koala bear would have been too warm and fuzzy for Power of the Dog. <laughs> oh, okay. It would have made people smile instead of scare the crap out of them. And they, <laughs> and they were pretending to be in Montana, so that would have been yeah. like, you know, something that the yeah, internet... Is this like mystical craziness, you know, that scares you like a horror movie? No, no. It, it's no. just a sense of foreboding. Yes. This guy, oh, Phil oh, Burbank, like is, uh, you know, played by played brilliantly by Benedict Cumberbatch, is just a dark force. And you know things are not going to end well. <laughs> they would have to travel too far to get a smile out of you at the end of this movie. Yeah, he's oh. a different type of, he's not like that kind of nerdy sort of, professorial guy that he often plays and he's, he's extremely handsome in every movie because that's his face but he's just dark and sinister is that too strong a word no okay no, no he's the I menace of like the whole it. movie yeah you'll like, like it like he might be hiding a switchblade on there himself. you go 
Oh, okay. And Got some it. secrets, and also some secrets. Secrets. Yeah. yeah. No, so. it's good. It's a, it's a it's a it's a masterclass in acting. Every single person in it is beyond. And this child, like a McPhee, uh, Cody McPhee, is unbelievable. You're going to hear a lot about this. But he thing. needs a sandwich. He's awfully thin. He is thin. That was part of the point. He had to be delicate <laughs> and effeminate. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. So, Cindy, oh my God, I love your book so much. Mm -hmm. Oh, Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was delish. It was just like hanging out with you. And I did read some of the reviews. And did you know that uh, people like Henry Winkler are just raving about this book? He wrote, Henry wrote, Cindy Williams, talented in everything she does, writing her book is no exception. Get ready to enjoy. And then Ron Howard wrote, Cindy's book brings back a lot of great personal memories, but it also entertained the hell out of me. The lady can write. And then Harrison Ford, who who wrote- Everyone's reading the book, Cindy. A great read. I couldn't put it down. Not a word of it is true. Cindy who? <laughs> I know. That's so, Harrison. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for reading that, Louise. Thank you. Great but let's compliment. let's start with your childhood because, you know, you're such a just innately talented and deep person, but your childhood was lonely, a little bit lonely and, and tough. And you mustered through a lot of on maybe unhealthy family dynamics? Well, yes. Yes, I did. Um, Yeah, I grew up in Texas and for the most part. And um, I, um, my dad was uh, the funniest man I ever, I have ever known. And just a great, great, fabulous guy. But he drank and he was an alcoholic. And when he drank, he turned into somebody else. And he worked during the day. And my mother worked as a waitress during the night. And so when he would come home from work at four o'clock from the time I was a little girl, he'd put me in the truck and uh, and we were in Texas, as I said, and we'd go to the bars and he'd lock me in the truck. He'd buy me candy, lock me in the truck. And then he'd go into the bars and he'd drink. And uh, I was always worried from a young age that we were going to get into a car accident or he'd be arrested or something. So I was always on the lookout like that. And it did, you know, it changes a person. I'd be uh, in the truck and he'd park in front of the bar and in the window. I remember this so vividly. I would see Schlitz. Schlitz. Oh, my. Schlitz. Mm-hmm. And isn't it ironic that, you know, on a neon sign advertising the beer in um, in the bar. But then later on, it just hit me one day when I was on the set of Laverne and Shirley. Shots. Shots. That was oh your shot. That's, that's what right. they wrote. That's what they took shots from. If it um, were a book, we'd call it foreshadowing. But I think it was the universe just kind of. Exactly. That's it. It was the universe, Louise. Mm-hmm. And all those kind of things have happened to me. And that's really kind of a fun, happy thing that came out of something. Talk about foreboding. Um, and um, so my childhood was, you know, it was it was rife with foreboding moments. And uh, but that's not to say that, you know, it wasn't didn't have a happy note to it, because, as I said, uh my dad was the funniest man I ever knew. And when he was sober, it, it was wonderful. Um, it's far and few between, but still. And my family, I come from a family uh, on the Williams side that are very funny people. Mm-hmm. They're just funny, yeah. just verbose and funny people. So that saved me. Plus, and I talk about this a little bit in my show that I'm doing. And I I may have talked about it in the book, too, Um that my dad would always drop me off at a different church every Sunday and tell me, Cindy, go in there and find the Sunday school and go to Sunday school, Church of Christ, Methodist Church, Baptist Church, Tent Revival. I want a Bible for perfect (laughs) attendance at Tent Revival. So this also, you know, just saved me because I had these wonderful Bible stories in um, Sunday school about Jesus and, and, and good Samaritans and wonderful people. And so I, from that, I just garnered from a small, you know, from a young age faith and that everything was going to be okay. And it did, it turned out a okay. 
And you and your father also had humor in common because it used to be that you and your dad would watch television or he'd be watching TV and somebody funny would come on and he'd say, come in here, Cindy, you'll love this guy. That, thank you for that, Fritz. Yes, he did. He would, uh, he, he turned me on to your show of shows, Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca. And I remember sitting there and, you know, with him and thinking, I can do, I love this. I can do that. But I was very, very young. But in my own mind, you know, my own child, childish ways, I said, I can do that. I love that. And it just made me so happy. And uh, he, um, toward the end of his life, he called me in and he said, I I was going actually to my first interview. uh, And he called me in and he said, Cindy, look at this. This guy is a fabulous singer. And it was Bob Dylan. And uh, my dad, my dad was pretty hip. And um, and as you say, he turned me on to wonderful, wonderful things. Um, And there's another piece to that. And it's that your dad knew you and you knew your dad knew you. And sharing those moments with you, they resonate with you still today because he he believed in you and he knew if he liked it, you were going to like it because you guys had that bond. And that's really special. Right. Well, I think any, you know, I mean, I did bond with my father in the most loving way, aside from the, you know, the, it was horrible when he drank, but aside from that, the love that my father, that his real self had and the humor and everything else, the, you know, he was protective of me and I just knew that. And so you're right, that bonding was there. And I think it is with children because my dad was a good guy. He wasn't a bad guy. He was a good guy. But he just, you know, the alcoholism overtook him. Yeah. You know, I don't want to get too far ahead of your youth because you spend part of your youth, the teenage part, in the, here in the San Fernando Valley in Southern yep. California, Birmingham High School. You live near Reseda or in Reseda, correct? The north and correct. northwest part of the San Fernando Valley. And I, I just think you and Penny, but in particular, you were so relatable to most Americans, which is 50% of what made your character so delicious for people, was that you just seemed so regular and relatable. And I, I, I read about where you spent your time, and, and the San Fernando Valley is like suburban America. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for people who aren't familiar with it, it, you know, it's the suburbs of Los Angeles. And I think maybe your experience in and around Southern California was was sort of what really kept your feet grounded and oh, made well, you so right. relatable. You're so right, Fritz, with that, because I went to church again. I went to the First Methodist Church of Reseda. I went to church camp. I was involved in all the church talent shows and um and everything else, youth camp, and um, plus high school, you know, it was in the days when it was a community. And um, they wrote Shirley as that person who was always down to earth. Both the characters were pretty down to earth. And Penny and I knew we had to be um, true to that. We had to have the integrity of those characters to make the comedy work, especially. And, and I, you know, my, my folks were blue collar workers. Well, um, my dad and my mom, she, my mom was a waitress and my dad was, he was, a, he was very, very bright, my dad, but he just didn't want to, uh, he only had a third grade education, but they wanted to make him manager at um, Bunko Ramo Woolridge, the big, um, um, oh, I don't know. They built missiles and computers out in the Valley, but um but it was a household like that. And it was a childhood. When I got into my teens, it was like that. All the neighbor kids and, you know, mm-hmm. that sense of familiar, that familial sense of of, of uh, community, if you will. And uh, that played right in to the two characters on the show. Now, Penny was, she was from the Bronx, mm-hmm. but had the same type of girlhood childhood as i did only from the bronx you know she girlfriends and she you know her mother owned a dance studio and she tap danced and they all went to camp together and so i think that 
as you said, Fritz, yes, we were, we always kept our feet on the ground. That was the only way that show was going to work was to maintain that sensibility. To me, what, what got you that show, or maybe the most important moment in your, in your book is when you describe how, since you and Penny had been writing together, as you were driving over, you said, what business can we do? And it was that business that you did that got you the spinoff, in my opinion. Can, can you tell that story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Penny and I were writers together on this movie. That's a whole other story. But uh, when we when Gary called us to do, you know, he said, I've got these two uh, characters on Happy Days. Uh, they go on a double date with Fonzie and uh, Richie. And uh, they're called Laverne and Shirley. And they're two girls who date the fleet. That's how he <laughs> described them to us. God. And um, so we went, uh, you know, so Penny and I thought, girls who date the fleet, hookers. And so we <laughs> decided that we were going to play the characters uh, chewing gum, smoking cigarettes. Now, mind you, Penny and I, neither one of us, even though Happy Days was her brother's show was Gary Marshall's show. She'd never seen an episode of it, nor had I. Oh, my God. So we thought we'd smoke cigarettes, chew gum. We were going to go in and have pin curls in our hair, you know, and take each other's pin curls. Out of <laughs> this is our first entrance. This is what we decided to do. And then we were going to fix each other's bra straps and slip <laughs> or smoking like that. So while you're arguing with each other, yeah, while we're bickering. Yeah. So we make this entrance and we do that. We stop and we do all that business. And then we take drags off our cigarette. And we're really smoking. <laughs> Chewing our gum and smoke. We take drags off our cigarettes. We look around uh, the room. We spot Richie and Fonzie. Take a last drag. We flick our cigarettes across the stage and we start walking toward them. And Jerry Paris, who was directing Happy Days, screams, cut! He said, what is that? What is that you were doing? Smoking? There's no smoking in family hour. And then he said, what do you think you're doing? A spinoff? Now get backstage, uh, rework it, and enter again. More foreshadowing. And so we... We went backstage and Penny and I were like, we were terrified now. we So we got rid of the cigarettes. We kept the gum uh, and um, we kept the pin curls. <laughs> and th while we're doing this, talking about it, I said, what's a spinoff? I don't know. What's what's family hour? I said, I don't know. So we, um, we we reworked it and we went out and um, and then we did the show. You know, it took a week and then we went back to our little writing job. And then two weeks later, they called us and they said, ABC saw this episode and they loved it. And they want to do a spinoff. Wow. And we said, what? <laughs> and they said a spinoff of the two characters. And it, we had to have it explained to us what a spinoff was. And they said, it's your own show. <laughs> and we still couldn't compute that. But anyway, that's how that came down. But, but, but about uh, setting your own business, you guys created most of your own physical stunts for the show, didn't you? I mean, th that was a part that was unwritten and it allowed you and Penny to come up with the gags yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because they tried to write them for us, and then um, we just reworked them on stage ourselves. And uh, then they come down and watch a run through, and they usually loved it. And uh, we had this litmus test, if you will, um, during rehearsal. If something we did or said, or if you know, if the story was going the wrong way, if it didn't make us during rehearsal, me and Penny laugh out loud, then we'd rework it because we figured it was not, if it made us laugh out loud, we we knew it was going to make the audience that came in because we shot it in front of a, a audience of two over 200 people. We figured if it made us laugh out loud during rehearsal, it was going to trans make that studio audience laugh out loud and then translate to the home audience. So we would always go for that laugh out loud. And no matter how stupid and silly we had to get for it. And it worked. Some and great physical gags. Now, was it one of the first blue collar 
sitcoms that resonated with maybe people that weren't uh, the father knows best type of family? Well, I think All in the Family came before us, okay. but it certainly wasn't. It, ours was more physical, you know. Um, and young ladies that worked. And women women who worked, yeah. Penny and I were neither one of us, you know. Um, you know, we didn't sign the contract to be feminists, but uh, <laughs> we just, you know, we just were what we were. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, people kept saying, oh, this is a feminist show. This is about two women. We go, yeah, it's about us. Because both of us had struggled to make ends meet in college. Both of us had had that background. And so, you know, it was just a a natural occurrence that it was about two women who really had to have the wolf nipping at their heels, which Penny and I always insisted on that it had to be a story about, you know, we can't pay the electric bill. We can't, you know, we have to put ends together to, to pay the rent. And, and there's always that desperation because that really helped the comedy. And that is blue collar. And that's my mom and dad. And that was not necessarily Penny's mom and dad, but that was her when she went to school and had to struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we understood that struggle. And it's a human, every man struggle that everyone can understand. And you put it to story and then to physical comedy. And you've got kind of an across the board, you know, great show. But the other thing was Louise and Fritz, we had back in those days, and you'll remember this, we had censors that were, um, that were, um, delegated to each show and the censor on the show on our show who watched the script you know for words and the storylines and everything else we did he was a born-again Christian fabulous guy and he wouldn't let us get away with diddly squat <laughs> so I don't think we could have said diddly squat so we, we had to invent around it and it, that made the show better and that's how you came up with Fodio. What did you exactly. call it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we didn't come up with it. I think that was a low Gantz <laughs> bit of line. Yeah. But yes, things like that. Exactly. But go- going back to struggle, even after you have a modicum of success, the struggle never stops. Because after American Graffiti, didn't you have to go back to being a waitress for a while? before you- I was thinking about it. Oh, okay. Because I-, I didn't work for a long time. And yeah. um uh, and I was thinking, well, I can't go, I can't wait tables in LA because I'd waited tables all through college. Right. But um, I, I knew I couldn't in LA because I was recognized there and I, I just didn't want, oh, that's interesting. I just didn't want to do it. So I was going to go up to Eugene, Oregon, which is a place I love and a university town and wait tables. And that happened right before uh, Laverne and Shirley happened. Like I had, talked to my mother and said, can I borrow $200 from you? Um, and I'll pay you back as soon as I get this job. You know, that's, that's how it went. And then the next day, uh, it seemed I was doing Laverne and Shirley and making, you know, money I couldn't fathom. But your relationship with Penny was already complicated because she had kind of walked away and wasn't returning your calls. And now you get this offer and you're feeling kind of hurt this is your friend that you bonded with and what's going on. So t- yeah, I think you're referring Louise to when we were riding together yeah. and uh, she like disappeared and I, I couldn't find her. And we had all these writing assignments. We were writing this um, bicentennial spoof for uh, Francis Coppola was producing it. And it was called my, Co- my country tis of thee. And it was supposed to be released uh, during the bicentennial. And it was all you know, sketches and music and uh, comedy about the making, you know, about America from the time the pilgrims came over and, and everyone was assigned sketches. You know, we had uh, Sutter's Mill and uh, the U.S. Patent Office and the Salem Witch Trials. Yes. And, and talk uh, about some of the other writers that you, you Steve Martin was a writer on Steve that Steve Martin, show. Martin yes. Mall, Harry Shear. Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, it's all going out of my head, but yes, uh, Steve and Carl Gottlieb and, uh, amazing writers and, but they were teams of writers. And so we were the skirts. We were the female (laughs) writing team. But, um, during that time, and this is after we had shot 
the happy days episode and they wanted to make it um, into, you know, they wanted us, they wanted to spin it off. Mm-hmm. Penny just, um, she disappeared on me. And so I had all these assignments. Well, I had two assignments and I couldn't find her anywhere. And, um, and then, you know, I thought, gee, I, I don't really want to do this show because, and I, and Penny and I've talked about this because, um, she disappeared on me and how can I, you know, I, and I have a bad feeling. And, um, so that's when I was going to go to Oregon and wait tables. And then, um, she showed up and, uh, and, and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Well, I'll she, put it that way. Did she explain and what she so, was going through? Because maybe maybe she had her own struggles of being a no. It herself. wasn't the, it wasn't anything that would have gone in the power of the dog. Got it. It was, <laughs> it, it was just she was. There were so many fun people over at the studio that time that she'd go off and have fun and write with them and didn't bother to tell me, Mm. which ticked me off. And um, but all's well that ends well. You you said something in your book, which was very similar to what we heard from Anson Williams talking about the success of Happy Days. And that is you guys are hard at work doing the day-to-day hard, long hours of creating a television show, and you're living in a bubble. And you had no sense of how popular the show was until you and Penny would go out on press junkets and personal appearances and saw these insane reactions in these little towns all over America that finally made you realize, oh my God, this is a huge hit we're involved in here. Talk about those emotions, especially when you're in your early 20s. That's that's probably hard to get your head wrapped around. Well, the first thing that happened was right after the show was aired, the first episode, uh, Gary came down to the set the next day and he was just so gleeful and he showed us um, the numbers, the overnights, mm-hmm. which are the numbers of how many people viewed the show. Mm-hmm. And he shows this number, Penny and me, and uh, and it was like, it was more than 36 million. I don't know the exact uh, number, but it was, it seems it was like up in the millions, millions and millions. Mm-hmm. And Penny and I just stared at it and everyone's cheering and applauding. <laughs> we had no sense of what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> and so the first time, like Anson said, we were constantly on the set because we did the show like a play. We rehearsed it four days. And then the fifth day when we were going to shoot it, uh, we rehearsed half of that day and then we shot it and then we started again. So nobody got off the soundstage. So the first time for Penny and me was when we went, we were asked to go to the um, Macy's Day Parade to be in the parade. And I thought, gee, this is great. Mm -hmm. We're going to be in the parade. And so we're on this float and, um, and all of a sudden, this crowd breaks the barriers and starts to run toward us. Oh, my God. And yes. Penny and I look behind to see who they were running <laughs> toward, who was there, because we would have joined the crowd. Is it you a know, Beatles? Maybe it's a tagger or somebody. <laughs> and it was us. And then security had to put us, you know, had to, like, get the, you know, waylay the crowd or whatever they did. And that was puzzling. And then outside our hotel room, uh, our hotel, the paparazzi was there and and there were like hundreds of uh, cameras and we had no idea it was for us. And then when we found out, so then I call that our two weeks of headiness where we <laughs> thought, wait a minute, for us, you know, we must be some special people and oh and going back to keeping your feet on the ground it was because penny and i never thought of ourselves as more special than anyone else ever ever and um so for two weeks there we did and it was bad we paid the piper and so uh we went back to just being us but um yeah, we never knew. When was it for Anson and, and everybody there? They went to Texas to play in some softball thing. Yeah, and the he softball. said they, oh, yeah. Had, they had no sense of how huge this show was. And it was it was a revelation to all of them. They were just blown away by it. They couldn't believe it. 
it's something else. I'll tell you, it's just how anybody would imagine it. It's, it's surreal and, Mm -hmm. and it's a blessing, you know, and Mm -hmm. a privilege, but, and, and you can't ever make it anything else but that. And people are so beautiful, you know, that's, um, I always say, People say, well, what is it? You know, your fans and they come up to you. Does that ever bother you? And I said, well, it's not like I played Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> and um, when they, uh, when people approach me, they approach me with their fun side, the, you know, their fun and happy side. And sometimes they'll come up and they'll thank me and Penny and the cast, you know, because we got them to, through a bad childhood. You know, we got them through, they watch us, they, they became our family. And I did that with my little Marjorie. Remember that show? Anybody, yes. anybody, you're of probably, yeah. mm-hmm. my little Marjorie and Southern, um, uh, Oh, what were the other shows? You, 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 I mean, you represented female empowerment. You you were, as Wheezy said, the first representation of like middle class blue collar women. And your friendship was bonded forever. And I think people, uh, particularly women during that time, really related to your relationship. Well, yeah. Yeah, I I think that. I'm sorry. Is it Wheezy? Oh, Wheezy's a nickname for Louise. Oh, Wheezy. Yeah. Okay. What do you prefer to be called? Oh, Wheezy's fine. You're on. We- yeah. yeah. Okay. I like saying that. Wheezy. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a character name from Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> well, it was we- from the Jeffersons, and that's how I got the nickname because my name is Louise, and I was a page on the Jeffers on the Norman Lear shows that year. And so everybody called you Wheezy. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Weezy and Fritz. Right. Those would be two Hey, you, you you were a waitress on the Sunset Strip back when the Sunset Strip was really the Oh, the Sunset whiskey Strip. stories. And yes. you And you got punked by Jim Morrison. You have to tell that story. Oh, it's so, you know, it's so difficult to tell the story because it's an action story. Yeah. But um, I was working at a place. Well, first I worked at IHOP on the strip, (laughs) uh, way down though near Hollywood High. And I I worked the graveyard shift. And then I got this job at Ye Piccadilly Deli. And then my friend said, they're hiring cocktail waitresses at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Live music, Cindy. (laughs) And I said, oh my God. So I went over and I got the job and uh, I had to quit my job at Ye Piccadilly Deli. And I love those people. They were so sweet, but I did. And um, so the first night after they had trained me, you know, how to hold up, you know, and serve drinks. And um, they they uh, assigned me the VIP section because there's the peanut gallery upstairs at the whiskey where the kids that can't afford to tip and can't afford, <laughs> you know, to drink more than two drinks sit. And then, and there are benches. And then there's the tables downstairs by the dance floor. And then there's the VIP booths. And they gave me the VIP booths. And I, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. Uh, Well, they gave me a table in front of the VIP booths. So they said, there's your first, your first customers, you know, go, go get them. So I go over to this table and there's this man who's facing away from me and these two blonde girls. And so I asked them, I said, what may I get you to drink? And each of the girls said, I'll have a uh, Tom Collins. And the other (laughs) one said, Tom Collins. And then I said, and for you, sir. And he turns around and they're in a shaft of light. (laughs) It's Jim Morrison. And all I'm thinking is I was just playing the album before I went to work. You know, this is the end. And I, I'm looking at him and I and he looked like a Greek god mm-hmm. in this light. And, I, and the light was just hitting him in the perfect way. And um, and I said, what would you have, sir? And he said, I'll have a bottle of Jack at the table. And I said, and I wrote down bottle of Jack at table. And so I run over and I put my ticket up and I'm about to run away back to the other customers. And the uh, bartender says, ho, 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 hold on. You new girl. What is this? Two Tom Collins and, and a bottle of Jack. And I said, yes. And he said, we don't serve Jack at the table. And I said, but and he goes, wait, let me guess. Morrison's in the club, right? And I said, yes. 
Jim Morrison <laughs> over there. And he said, well, he knows perfectly well I can't send him a bottle to the table. Uh, tell him he can have a single or a double, but no bottle at the table. And I'm thinking, I don't want to tell Jim Morrison <laughs> can't have a bottle of Jack at the table. But I go and I go back and I say, excuse me, Mr. Morrison, I'm so sorry, but uh, I'm not allowed to um, bring a bottle to the table. I can serve you a single or a double. And he says, I've had a bottle at my table before, and I want a bottle here tonight. Who's tending bar? Is it Tony? <laughs> and I, yes, it is. And he goes, you go back and you tell that so-and-so that I want my bottle of Jack on the table. I want it now. So I run back. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've got other customers trying to flag me down. I run back and I go, listen, Tony, I'm sorry. But he goes, no bottle of Jack at the table. And I go, but please, can't I? And he goes, absolutely not. You go back there and you tell that so-and-so he cannot have a bottle of Jack at the table. So I go back and I'm in tears now. And I say, Mr. Morrison, I'm so sorry. I can get you a single or a double and I'm happy to buy it for you. Uh, but I cannot serve you a bottle of Jack at the table. And this went on a couple more times. And finally, he says, he takes my hand and he says, "What? what is your name? And I said, Cindy. And this is the first time I'd ever heard this termed like this he said well miss cindy because he called everyone in those days miss and you know and he said just bring me a double we're just playing with you and i looked around and tony's leaning over the bar laughing and all the waitresses and the bus boys and mario the club owner and, and Elmer, they're all laughing at me and jim morrison had, morrison had punked me and then after that they relegated me to the peanut gallery <laughs> Wow, oh, that's yeah, how you yeah. get initiated at the whiskey. That that's, was amazing. That is, yeah. Now, it can you fun. let's talk a moment for about Ron Howard because it was interesting to me that in all corners of your book, he's a recurring theme, and he, you know, he's a young guy that grew up in show business, but now he's trying to adult in show business, and you're just newly adulting in show business, but you keep intersecting with one another. Talk about that a little bit. I like that term, Wheezy, adulting in show business. <laughs> Are you sure we're not going to get canceled using that term? <laughs> I think um, we're good. <laughs> during American Graffiti, you say? Yeah, and then it, then the, your happy days. And it just seemed like every time you went somewhere, there was Ron Howard. Like he was like I mean, your yes. beacon. In fact, Ronnie and I had this conversation a couple of years ago. Uh, he said, wow, we played everything together. We played you know, dates. We played each other's um, boyfriend and girlfriend. We played high school sweethearts. We played um, a married couple. And, you know, and then on Happy Days uh, and Laverne and Shirley, we played, you know, two opposite kind of people who dated. But also, which very few people know, Fritz, what's the name of that old show? Um, Inspirations or something that... Um, that the Catholic Church uh, produced. Um, Bishop Fulton Sheen? Yes. What was that? I'm, anyway. not, I'm not saying I'm old, but that was at the start of television. That oh, was, <laughs> it was Insights. Insights, Insights, yes. I played Ron Howard's mother. Stop. Yes. He was in heaven getting ready to be born. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ill. And I was ill and I didn't want the baby, you know, oh. and, and and that was a story. And I played his mother. Wow. And um, so um, what was your question? Oh, just that <laughs> he's, he's, he's a recurring theme in your life. He seems to be kind of this beam of light that's guiding you through. Absolutely yeah. a recurring theme. And he has a book out now. I feel yeah. The Boys. Mm -hmm. The Boys. And, um, and he writes about us, you know, trying to go over our lines together because when he did in American graffiti, Ronnie was just, uh, had just turned 18 when he hit the set and I was 24. Mm -hmm. So, and, um, and we had to do like this makeout scene together and we were really nervous and it ended up, if you ever see American graffiti, where I asked George, well, can we go down in the seat and play the scene off camera? And, George said, yes, and that's how we play it and get into that fight. But anyway, uh, we would learn our lines together 
and we would go over the script together and we, you know, we dance because we had that dance scene. We practiced that together, but we were kids and he was, I was so nervous because I was six years older than him. You know, I wore no makeup. Well, there was no makeup or hair in American graffiti because it was so low budget and no dressing rooms. Um, but we were both so nervous and then you know, we did all these and we were so nervous about that kissing scene in uh, American Graffiti. Yet on Happy Days, you cut to I don't know how many years later was it? Um, four, three or four. And we had a huge kissing <laughs> uh, scene where I kiss him, you know, in that and things had changed. And um, but, yeah, we kind of grew up together like that. And uh, in a way, in a certain chunk of our um, lives, young adult lives. Here. So many of these people uh, uh, had their careers born out of American Graffiti. It was a really low budget movie and George Lucas's first enterprise. Did you have any sense that this was going to go on to become one of the great iconic American movies? And did you have any sense that all these talented people you worked with, Ronnie and Harrison Ford and all these other people who have recurred in our lives over the last 30 or 40 years, did you have a sense that you were going to be part of something that big when you were shooting that movie? Well, I'll tell you, um, we thought we were doing a Roger Corman hot rod movie. That That's <laughs> it. You know, even though George had been described to all of us as this wunderkind out of, you know, USC. And um, we had met with George, Ron and myself, because he met with the whole cast, but just Ron and me and George. And he described American Graffiti as a musical because he said the music will never stop except for two plot points. When the source of the music is gone, when the car rolls over, when the car is stolen. And I remember walking out with Ron and we looked at each other and said, a musical genius. <laughs> but when we were shooting, it was rough because it was shot in 28 nights, one morning and one morning. And uh, it was so low budget. Like I said, we had no dressing rooms. We just stand around to wait for our setups out in the dark, way out in Marin County. And um, so, like I said, we thought we were doing this hot rod movie, all of us. And then two weeks in, which is half of the film, the shooting schedule, George invited the whole cast to come to the editing bay in San Francisco and where he had put a 20 minute uh, assemblage of, the, of what we've shot so far with music. And at, by the time we finished watching that, Harrison Ford turned to everybody and said, this is freaking great. <laughs> and we all knew it was great. Wow. And we knew we were in something special then. Wow. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the friendship that is depicted in Laverne and Shirley, because friendships are messy and your relationship with Penny was sometimes described as messy. Oh, yeah. Uh, what did you learn about friendship through having, not having to, but through sharing that experience with Penny? Well, I wouldn't call that a shared experience in friendship. We were great friends, you know, uh, when the show was over. I mean, we were just great friends. She's like a sister to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used to, I'd go over to her house and sit in bed with her and wa we'd watch TV. <laughs> but um, during that time, we, as much as we were similar you know, which is the reason for the show. We'd know where the joke was, where the beat was, what wouldn't work. You, you could take us into any room, anywhere, anytime. Um, maybe we hadn't seen each other for 15 years, but we'd pick the one thing out together in the room that was funny and, <laughs> and interesting. But, um, and make the same comment about it. But during the show, we, she had a way where everything, she had it all down immediately. I have dyslexia and, you know, things would be uh, just swirling until I put it all together at the end of the week. But, and she really had no patience for me and I don't blame her. Um, but we get into arguments about other things. Like uh, I'd say, well, I can like before the show became a two person physical show, it was just really, uh, Penny that they knew could do physical comedy, her brother and everyone. And so um, I, I got upset at that because I said, I do physical comedy. I kept telling everybody that. 
And uh, finally, after about uh, a season, Gary came down to the set and he said, all right, you've been bellyaching about doing physical comedy. We're going to write something for you. And if you do it, you know, well, then, you know, we'll start writing it that way. And so I did this. They wrote this little bit for me and about a uh, the vacuum cleaner gets stuck on her. Uh, lips <laughs> at, while we're cleaning house and they just said Cindy you know Shirley removes it and so they wanted to see what I do so I tried putting my foot on her chest and pulling but <laughs> I couldn't get my leg up that high but anyway it was funny and so then it became a two-person physical show and you know things just happened it um things just happened on the show where Penny would get upset about something and then I'd get upset about her being upset at something. And then there'd be, she's Sicilian and I'm Sicilian mm-hmm. and there'd be an operatic screaming match. <laughs> and then we'd say, what do, what do we want to order for lunch? And that would be kind of the way it went. But there was, a there was, as you said, a lot of friction, but you know, all's well that ends well. Right, right, right. And you've shared that. And that's like being in a band together, right? Exactly. But the minute we went on stage, none of that was there. None of it. It was all about the place, the thing. And, uh, and we had, we brought none of that to the, to the stage with us. And it's also like, you know, you created all these shows together. So you co-parent them for life. Exactly. One time we had the uh, Olivia Newton, John, fabulous person, uh, came down to the set. She was going to ask us, uh, to be on her uh, special. And she came down early and Penny and I were going at it in my dressing room. And then uh, Monica Johnson, the show's producer said, my God, will you two shut up? Olivia Newton-John's out here. And she's delicate. <laughs> she's and, delicate. Uh, so, so Penny and I said, well, we're not ready to go out there yet. And we kept looking Aww. and seeing Olivia. And she was very patient, beautiful, sitting there at the table waiting for us. And uh, I don't think we ever, we said, we'll have to talk to you later. Well, she was busy. But that was something funny. I, uh, when I saw Olivia years later, I talked to her about it. She, and she laughed. She was busy being mellow. And she was, was exactly. Yeah. Now, she's so mellow. She's so mellow. Now, you guys have been compared to Lucy and Ethel. And yeah. I'm wondering if you ha- ever had a chance to meet them. No. Wow. Never. Um, but I did do Circus of the Stars with, remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I yeah. did it with, and Lucille Ball was the ringmaster, or, and she was, and it was a dress rehearsal, and we were out on a break in the parking lot, and, and with the soundstage door was, you know, there, and we were over here, and there were elephants and monkeys and, you know, dog acts and everybody waiting outside on their break. To go back, and we were all in costumes. And little Lucy, uh, you know, Lucy Arnaz mm-hmm. was up on a big, big elephant, and she was in some act with elephants. And so Lucille Ball comes out, and she sees her daughter, and she goes, um, "Hey, Lucy!" And she goes, "Hey, mom!" And just then, someone screams, "Look out! He's coming your way!" And uh, through the crowd, you hear everyone screaming. Through the crowd comes a chimpanzee in a top hat, and a little chimpanzee in a, in a, a tuxedo. And he's running straight for Lucille Ball. And the trainer's running after him and saying, look out, look out, look out. And she's standing now in the frame of the uh, stage door. And he comes right at her and she goes up on her toes, bows her legs, and the chimpanzee runs right through <laughs> them. And onto the soundstage. And without missing a beat, Lucy turns to little Lucy and says, Lucy, whatever you do, don't let go of that elephant. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my Lucille Ball story. I mean, talk about genius on her feet. Oh, my gosh. For sure. You you, um, mentioned that you were writing that bicentennial sketch show with Francis Coppola. And then you later went to work with him on The Conversation. I love that movie because I just love Gene Hackman, right? Well, actually, it's reversed. I had done The Conversation oh. and he hired me 
as a writer. Oh, I got you. Okay. Well, anyway, it was it was one of your two relationships with Francis Coppola. And I related to it because you shot it in the Transamerica building and the whole time you were having a premonition about an earthquake, which is exactly what I would have been feeling were I in the Transamerica building in San Francisco because I hate earthquakes and I would have been petrified to be at the top of the Transamerica building. Well, yeah, that's where we were shooting on the day that they had predicted that California yeah, would, yeah. you know, there'd be this terrible earthquake and yeah. it would float off into the Pacific. Yeah, yeah. But um, how, how was that yeah, film? It was really scary, and it wasn't finished. You know, the building, the the that's why he shot there because that floor it was like the 18th floor. Or something it wasn't finished, and um, or it was higher, and. Uh, it was scary, and everybody was saying, "Oh, I know what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen?" <laughs> and, but it didn't, and I knew it. I, I knew in my heart of hearts it wasn't gonna happen. But how many times have they said that about California? Oh, I know. How, how, so, how was the experience working, being directed by Francis Coppola, and and working on that movie? A really interesting. Well, dark he's movie. beyond brilliant. You know, I mean, he just. I had this. Um, he's just an actor's. He loves actors, and. Uh, I had this part in the movie where Gene Hackman is chasing me in the fog and I run up these steps in a park and I'm supposed to um, give him a look, stop and give him a look. And what Francis wrote for me was the look was to say, if you come one step closer to me, I'll disappear and you'll never catch me. You'll never see me. And I tried it and tried it. I couldn't do it. And finally, Francis came. I said, I can't do this. I just don't know how to do it. And Francis, this is what a brilliant director he is. He said, all right, take every step but the last one and then turn to Gene. And when you turn, take the last step. And that put the look on my face. So I'm just mm -hmm. saying that because he's such a marvelous director. Wow. And um and everything about him is operatic and, and, you know, and, and that beautiful, you know, just that beautiful Italian art and it, everything about him is artful, everything mm -hmm. and, and operatic artful and just, just an incredible, I, I, how blessed was I, you know, what a privilege. Yeah, it was it was a great university for you to learn your craft. Now, uh, you have a one woman show. And I want yes. I want you to talk about that for us because you know as as people are just so aching to go out and experience something in real life again, you've got this show. So tell us about it. Some fun, yeah. <laughs> well, I wrote this during when I was locked down during COVID, and I uh, wrote it with Charles Duggan, and who's the producer of my show. And uh, it's an hour and a half of fun and laugh out loud, and that's what I was going for. And uh, it does have when you asked about you know, my life as a child and everything. Um, that's what they they asked for. They said, well, we can't just do show business because it's all, you know, but what about before, before you were 18? You know, what about your childhood? So I said, I'll do it. I'll do that if I can do it in a song. Like, remember when Barbara Streisand sang the minute waltz? I have got a minute, just a little minute. I have only got a minute to sing this minute waltz. And I said, if I can do it fast like that and put it to song, then I'll do it. So my friend Bruce Kimmel, who uh, is a wonderful composer and writer and um, I went to school with, he did put it in a song. And so I, you know, I sing my um, born in a suburb and, and they call Van Eyes and it's to the tune of Davy Crockett. Right. <laughs> Um, mama was a waitress serving burgers and fries. <laughs> Daddy loved his liquor, kept it in the chicken coop. If mama ever found it, she'd knock him for a loop. And then, then they sing the rest of it and we talk. Does it go, so Cindy, Cindy Williams? Yes. yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> Where would My favorite part is when here? you come. I don't know if it's <laughs> after an intermission. Pardon? I don't know if it's after an intermission. My favorite part of your show is when you come riding out on a forklift. I said, I like this already. I don't even know what she's saying. It was fantastic. It's an hour, an hour and a half. It's 90 minutes. So that is in the middle of the show. And then I, I sort of teach Shlemiel Shlemazel, talk about that and, um, and how Gary did that and everything. So where are you going to take it and what's next? 
I'm starting in Palm Springs at the Annenberg Theater, January 20th through the 22nd. And then we go, we're, we're not going into LA or anywhere too near there. Um, then I go to Phoenix and Santa Fe and then um, Austin, Texas, Houston, Texas, San Antonio, then Oklahoma and blah, 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 blah all over uh chicago i'm looking at it here i'm getting tired yeah. just looking at it <laughs> uh, kentucky uh, north carolina tennessee and then back home and when people get a chance to meet you they probably talk about their own friendships that remind them of or your friendship with with Penny and Laverne and Shirley reminds them. I'm sure people tell you all the time, oh, this is just a, like my friendship. And and they describe their friendships to you. Is that is that what happens? Yeah. that I mean, not all the time, but mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, my best friend and I were Laverne and Shirley. I was Shirley and yeah. she was Laverne. Mm-hmm. And can we have a picture? And we entered the Halloween contest and we won. <laughs> and just all, all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah. Do you have um, the classic show business stories of roles you regret not having gotten? For instance, you auditioned for Janet in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which ultimately was cast to Susan Sarandon. And I just wonder how you would feel about being played at midnight still in movie houses all over America, because that thing continues today. God, I'd love it. I would have loved to have sung that song, you know, came down between, but she was marvelous, yeah, you know. Um, what was it? In the velvet darkness of the blackest night. But I just couldn't hit those high notes with, um, yeah. <laughs> all the, that was a real treat. And you know where we, uh, we auditioned at the Roxy. Mm. Oh, wow. You know, in, on, the, on the strip. It's pretty intimidating. Sunset. Yeah. And all, all the parts that you talked about not getting, I could still have pictured you in. Oh, thank you. What a compliment. Yeah. Thank you. And what were some of the others? I forget. Oh, some of the others. Yeah. Uh, um, that I didn't get or that I turned down or both. Yeah. Maybe I just. Well, don't. Home Alone. I, I turned that down. I, you know, shamefully, I am so ashamed. Um and home improvement um and and my friends told me anything with home in it cindy take yeah don't don't just mess around let's just go for it Um, yeah and then arthur i was supposed to do but i didn't you know the um film with dudley moore and um what didn't i get uh oh I auditioned for Star Wars. That's in my show. Right, right, right. And I have a, um, I have my audition tape, and I show it in the show. Oh, and, oh that's, that's worth oh, the price oh, of admission. It is so bad. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, I have fun with that in the show. And um, let's see. Oh, Young Frankenstein. Um, I was supposed to. Um, I was supposed to. Well, I had that part for a couple of weeks and then they got, um, oh, who played his, not Terry Gar, but I'm so sorry. Oh, Madeline Kahn? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Madeline Kahn. It just went right out of my mind. No, that's but okay. They sprung her from this other movie yeah. that she was doing long, you know, that was the reason they had other people come in and read for the Madeline Kahn part in that. But I could still picture you doing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Louise. I, I should send you an eight by ten signed. I would really eight. enjoy that. Now, what? Where else can we find you? And where can people find you on Twitter and on social media? And what? What else is happening that people should know about? I'm not really on social media. Mm-hmm. It took me three days to get off of Facebook at one time because I got scared of it. But I, yeah. um, if for information for the show, you can go to me, myself, and Shirley.com. Right. And there's, uh, and that leads you to other Instagram and, um, and other, other social media pages. We always like to end our show with a benediction. So please tell the story of being blessed by little Richard before we go. <laughs> That was more foreshadowing. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, um, it was the first time I really met Penny, kind of. Uh, We were on a double date, uh, ironically, foreshadowing. And we went to see, our dates took us to see um, 
Liza Minnelli at the Coconut Grove and uh, Little Richard was opening for her. So after the show, we were invited back to meet um, Liza Minnelli and we were very excited. Penny and I hadn't really spoken because we got to the theater, sat down, the show started. So we're walking backstage to the dressing rooms and the dressing rooms were like railroad cars. You had, in other words, you had to go through one to get to the next. So for us, the boys had gone, our dates had gone ahead of us and Penny and I were walking side by side and we're crossing, you had to go through Little Richard's dressing room to get to Liza Minnelli's. So we're walking side by side and we get in the door frame and I see him, he's sitting at his dressing table to the right and he looks up at us and sees us and he puts his leg up and stops us like one of those car park things you know. and, and he keeps it there and he says you two i want to say a blessing over you two and penny and i immediately bowed our heads and little richard proceeded to say the most wonderful blessing over us and when he was finished he shouted amen and penny and i shouted amen and he put his leg down and we proceeded on and years from that time um we were uh, penny and i were on this uh soundstage uh, of Laverne and Shirley, and I saw this headline on a variety on the industry uh, paper that read Laverne and Shirley Gold in LA. And I called Penny over and I said, Look at this, Laverne and Shirley Gold in LA. What do you think the reason for our success is? And she said, Little Richard's blessing. And I said, Absolutely. Oh. Because he had blessed us. I should have said, you know, done a prayer for our success. And yeah, he was an uh, ordained Baptist minister. Pardon? He was an ordained Baptist preacher, wasn't he? I know that. Yeah. And a magical person. Reverend Pennymaker. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. Wow. Well, we just want to thank you so much for being with us. We're going to do our closing bit right now, and uh, and we'll thank you uh, officially at the end of the credits. But this has just been a wonderful conversation, Cindy. Thank you. Right back at you. You guys are great. Thank, thank you. you so much, Penny. You're wonderful. Right. Thank you. Cindy. Well, if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're new here and this is your first time, check out our back catalog. There's a lot of binge-worthy stuff. For instance, if you want to hear some great conversations with some of America's greatest comics, like Wendy Liebman, Taylor Williamson, Tom Dreesen, who opened for Sinatra for 20 years, Sean Polofsky, Elaine Boozler, who was a groundbreaking lady comic, Wayne Fetterman, who was a producer on The Jimmy Fallon Show, please check us out. Thank you for spending this hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful, adorable guest, Cindy Williams. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman and Cindy Williams, and we will see you along the media path.